This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 30th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court will examine more than a dozen cases that challenge the court-invented doctrine of qualified immunity, which serves largely to protect corrupt, abusive cops from the consequences of violating Americans' rights. Cato's Jay Schweikert has looked over the cases. He's cautiously optimistic the court will take a case challenging qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is an important issue to you, to our criminal justice scholars at the Cato Institute. Up until now, what has been the thing that has kept it off of the docket uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say for sure. I mean, this is, uh, in a lot of ways, I think this has been a, a bit of a sleeper issue. I mean, qualified immunity has been around um, in its present form since the early 1980s. Uh, and it's obviously been something that civil rights attorneys uh, have been very aware of and been confronting on a regular basis since then. Um, but it's really only been in the last, I think, you know, sort of three or four years that there's been uh, this, de- in my view, sort of developing consensus that not only is this doctrine uh, practically problematic in terms of the regular injustices that it permits, um, but that it also really doesn't lack any, it, it, that it doesn't have any strong legal basis. Um, the Supreme Court uh, in recent years has sort of put forward this defense of the doctrine as somehow rooted in uh, 18th century and 19th century common law, um, because the court, of course, has recognized that the text of Section 1983, our main federal civil rights statute, doesn't say anything about immunity. Uh, and so the way the court has defended this doctrine is, well, this just incorporated you know, existing rules at common law. Uh, and I think it, w- it really was this uh, scholarship of Will Bode, uh, in a ver- who in a very influential 2018 piece called Is Qualified Immunity Unlawful, um, you know, really dug into this and just exposed uh, uh, that theory that defensive qualified immunity is historically baseless. Um, that in fact, the, uh, the, the baseline assumption in the founding era and throughout the 19th century was strict liability for public officials who violate people's rights. Um, and that it really, uh, that, you know, basically that all the defenses put for the legal defenses of qualified immunity fall short. Now, I mean, he's not the first person ever to have pointed this out. I mean, Akhil Amar was talking about this all the way back in the 1990s, but this, 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 this is a really, uh, you know, thorough piece that I think kind of galvanized a lot of the legal opposition to qualified immunity. And that's, in my view, is sort of harmonized with the more moral, practical criticisms of qualified immunity to create really sort of a perfect storm uh, for, for, uh, for undermining this doctrine. And so I think now we're seeing that come to a head. And uh, just to remind listeners, the doctrine of qualified immunity, which appears effectively nowhere in federal law, much less the Constitution, allows uh, agents of the state to do what? Qualified immunity protects state actors from legal liability, even when they break the law. Uh, the text of our of our main federal civil rights statute is very simple, and it just says any state actor who violates someone's constitutional rights shall be liable to the party injured. Uh, but under qualified immunity, it's actually not enough that the state actor violates someone's constitutional rights. According to the Supreme Court, uh, the defendant also has to violate, quote, clearly established law, unquote. 
And that that term, clearly established law, is really the key to understanding qualified immunity. Because in practice, what it requires is a civil rights plaintiff to show a prior case already decided with functionally identical facts to their case. So to get redress for uh, a violation of your constitutional rights, you basically have to find someone else whose rights were violated in exactly the same way. And if you can't find that, then the court, then it's, it's quite common for courts to say, yes, your rights were violated, but we can't find a sufficiently similar case, so you lose. And uh, for cases where uh, courts decide, yes, your rights were violated, we cannot find uh, sufficiently similar uh, details in another case, that sort of kicks the can down the road because if we can't find a similar case where your your rights had been violated and you and that person then received some sort of uh, relief or uh, remuneration for having their rights violated. Um, we can't all we can't then do it now. Yeah, so it's it's a kind of weird feature of this doctrine. The courts actually have a choice about how to approach this question. Um, the Supreme Court has said that courts can decide, the underlying constitutional question or the clearly established law question in whatever order they want. Um, so basically, a court can say, you know, okay, step one, yes, your rights were violated. This was a constitutional violation. But step two, uh, it wasn't clearly established, so you don't get a remedy. Now, that's an obvious injustice because someone whose rights were violated doesn't get a remedy. But at the very least, it establishes the law going forward. So if someone else's rights are violated in exactly that same way, at least they would be able to get it. But courts don't have to do that. They can actually jump straight to that second question about clearly established law and say, we're not, we're not going to decide whether your rights were violated. All we're going to say is it wasn't clearly established, so dismiss. And that is even worse because it means that the law doesn't become clearly established. So another individual, even the same defendant, could commit exactly the same misconduct the next day and they could still get qualified immunity because the law hasn't become clearly established. Um, and this isn't a hypothetical concern. I mean, in practice, this happens a lot with a lot of issues. I think one of the best examples is the, uh, the question of the right to record police officers in public. Um, every single federal appellate court that has addressed this question on the merits has held that citizens have a First Amendment right to record police in the course of their public duties. But often this has come up through the lens of qualified immunity. And in that sense, a lot of courts have held, well, you know, you don't get a remedy for violation of that right because it wasn't clearly established. And in the Third Circuit, this is uh, th this question has come up multiple times in sequential cases where each time the court has said, well, it's not clearly established, so dismiss. And then in the next case, well, guess what? It's still not clearly established. Dismiss. So uh, it, it results in not only the denial of rights to people uh, who are the victims of, of official misconduct, but also the stagnation of the law in general. So uh, you wrote a blog post at Cato detailing several of the cases uh, that the Supreme Court will be looking at. What? Why so many cases? Why now? So there's been a ton of momentum uh, behind this effort to uh, narrow or outright abolish qualified immunity. Uh, this is driven in the last couple of years, over the last couple of years, uh, I think this is in large part due to the fact that Justice Thomas in a 2017 
uh, concurrence in a case called Ziglar versus Abbasi. Uh, basically, uh, cited the uh, the Will Bode article that I mentioned earlier and said, you know, look, this doesn't look like it has much legal basis. We should reconsider it. So he explicitly kind of called for this question. And then the next year, um, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg wrote a dissent in a case called um, Casella versus Hughes, where they pointed out that uh, qualified immunity has become basically an absolute shield for law enforcement, in their words, that has gutted the deterrent effect of the Fourth Amendment. So kind of looking at it from a different angle, but also being highly critical of the modern doctrine. Um, and so uh, litigants and public policy groups like Cato kind of took that as a sign that, you know, there's 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 opportunity here. There's there's finally, you know, a willingness from a diverse array of justices who don't always see eye to eye to reconsider this. And so one of our main goals at Cato over the last couple of years has been to identify the most promising cases uh, for reconsidering this doctrine and to provide strategic amicus support um, uh, um, uh, to, to, to encourage the court to take those cases and reconsider the doctrine. And, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of qualified immunity cases. There are a lot of people whose rights are being violated who aren't getting a remedy. So there's no shortage of opportunities to raise this question. What is what is interesting about the, the situation we're in right now is that several of these cases have been fully briefed and ready for the court's resolution since the very beginning of this term. Um, so since one like uh, one of these cases, Baxter versus Bracy. Uh, which is a case brought by the ACLU involving a man who uh, suffered very serious injuries from a police dog that was deployed on him after he had surrendered and was sitting on the ground with his hands up. Uh, that case was set to be considered on October 1st of 2019. Um, and this court has rescheduled it five times since then, basically sitting on it. Uh, and our hypothesis at the time was that they were holding it to consider it along with several of these other qualified immunity cases in the pipeline. Uh, and it looks like now that 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 we were correct. That was what the uh, what the plan was. And so at this point, um, at the May 15th conference coming up, there are 11 different qualified immunity cases that we're aware of that the court is going to consider. So we I believe we discussed this at the time. Uh, last year when it was unclear why this case was being sort of kicked down the road repeatedly. Um, do these or do all of these cases share um, certain facts or certain technical elements of uh, how they were decided at lower courts? The facts are different in all of these cases. Um, some of them involve police misconduct. Some of them involve egregious prison conditions. Um, so it's 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 a, it's a it's a diverse array of facts that we have in all of them. Um, in most of these cases, uh, and almost all of them, the lower court denied, or excuse me, the lower court granted immunity to the state defendants, uh, so, which is which is the common pattern. I mean, uh, the Supreme Court has over the last several years basically told lower courts, "Look, you better think twice before you ever consider denying immunity, because you'll get reversed." Uh, the Supreme Court has been very aggressive in reversing and often summarily reversing, i.e. reversing without even hearing argument, lower courts that uh, that deny immunity. So most of the time here, we have individuals, uh, civil rights plaintiffs who lost at the appellate court. Um, there, There's, I believe, one exception, but um, in almost all of these, uh, we're facing people who, who have lost and are asking the court um, to uh, to reverse the lower court. Um, in In... 
some of these cases explicitly call uh, for qualified immunity to be reconsidered. Um, the Baxter case that I mentioned does. Um, some of the petitions uh, don't call for the reconsideration of qualified immunity entirely, but rather for the modification or narrowing or clarification of qualified immunity. So there's a little bit of a range in terms of how significant of an, of a, an ask they're making. Um, but realistically, I think, you know, they're, it, they're all kind of raising the same underlying question of qualified immunity is not working. It's unclear. It's, it's causing doctrinal problems. It's causing practical problems. This, that we need to address this, right? And whether that means narrowing it, modifying it, or abolishing it entirely, um, all of these cases really involve that, that fundamental underlying question. So Justice Thomas explicitly called for uh, this question to be addressed by the court, it, thus inviting cases to be brought to the court. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, appears skeptical. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, who I can remember uh, when she was uh, facing confirmation, Joe Biden famously told a group of cops, she will have your back. Uh, and she has been uh, remarkable in uh, challenging a lot of uh, made-up doctrines that the, the court has, has used in the past. And this seems to be an area where uh, she might be willing to go along with it. it who else it, it might be willing to say, hey, this doesn't work and we need to, we need to either uh, narrow it or get rid of it entirely? Sure. Um, and, and I guess when we're talking about, you know, which of the justices may be the most likely votes here, I think there's there's the sort of substantive question about their views on qualified immunity. But there's also the somewhat more, you know, meta question about their approach to reconsidering precedent uh, generally. Um, because, of course, you know, qualified immunity has been around for a while. Um, and so, you know, at this point, no one really defends qualified immunity on the um, you are not going to find anyone who will say with a straight face, yes, modern qualified immunity doctrine is the best interpretation of Section 1980. Absolutely no one will say that. The, so this, this, this debate is a legal matter is really more about stare decisis and whether the court should uh, revise its precedent and whether the mistake is sufficiently serious and sufficiently wrong to, to justify that. Um, so I was actually, I, you know, it's interesting because I was I was looking at the courts, uh, the, the various opinions in Ramos v. Louisiana uh, just from last week or a couple weeks ago. Um, this was the case where the Supreme Court held that uh, uh, the Sixth Amendment right uh, guarantees a right to a unanimous jury. Um, and I won't go into too many of the details of the case, but it involved how to uh, consider some of the court's previous uh, uh uh, misguided precedent. And so there were a lot of the justices were sort of writing separately to discuss their theory of precedent. And in the Ramos case, Justice Kavanaugh uh, concurred and agreed that it was worth reconsidering precedent uh, in that instance. But he, you know, had a kind of typically sort of cautious middle of the road. Sorry, decisis is really important, but it can uh, yield to sufficiently, you know, serious uh, other considerations. So I was reading that, you know, thinking about how he would look at the qualified immunity issue. Um, and, I, you know, I think that, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is a true believer in textualism and originalism, and the textualist and originalist arguments against qualified immunity are very strong. 
Um, so I think that, you know, he is potentially in play, but it's, you know, it's hard to say whether he would be willing to reconsider precedent. Um, the dissenters in Ramos, the ones who wouldn't have changed the court's precedent, no matter, even though it was, everyone agreed it was wrong, uh, were Alito, uh, the chief and Justice Kagan. Um, so I think that, you know, those, they're probably some of the less likely votes. And, you know, you look at someone like Justice Kagan, who I think, you know, if we were deciding this issue fresh today, I have no doubt that she would, you know, interpret Section 1983 the way that it's written. But um, compared to some of the other more liberal-leaning justices, she seems to be a little bit less inclined to overturn precedent. So, you know, that means that her vote may be a little bit harder to get here. Um, but I think that, you know, Kavanaugh is in play. I think that Breyer is in play. Um, sometimes it's a little bit, you know, Breyer has some sometimes idiosyncratic views when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, relations between the individual and the state that sometimes match up more with the more libertarian understanding of the law and sometimes less so. So, you know, I mean, it's all guesses at this point, but I would say that, you know, probably either Kavanaugh or Breyer are the most likely fifth votes. Um, but, you know, this is all speculation at this point. All right. Um, when will the court be considering this? And, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, they have sort of kicked the can down the road with this many cases that they'll be looking at. Does that, does that become less likely that they'll do that again? I would be shocked if they delayed this again. Um, because they've been sitting on some of these cases with no activity uh, for several months now. And now all of the cases, uh, you know, are fully briefed. I mean, there are more cases further down the pipeline. I mean, there's the, the, it's not going to stop until the court addresses this. But I think the fact that they have purposely decided to put all 11 of these qualified immunity cases, you know, on the docket for one conference means that they're going to decide it here. Um decide whether to take the to, to, you know to take up one or more of these cases so I would be shocked if we saw further delays at this point uh, and you expect them to take uh, some of these cases I am I am cautiously optimistic uh, I mean the you know the Supreme Court takes a very very small set of cases um, so the odds are always against the cert grant um, and these are you know aggressive asks right when I mean, we're asking the court to confront the fact that some of its precedent is seriously misguided um, and that's a difficult ask but I think that it's the fact that the court has has purposefully put all these cases together to me is a good sign because if they were just going to give this you know the back of the hand and dismiss these cases there would be no reason for them to sort of build up so much momentum by putting them all together um, I, it is possible, you know, that uh, there are maybe, you know, three justices who would like to take these cases and they have a very impassioned, you know, opinion about that, but they can't get a fourth justice to go along. And just to clarify, you only need four justices to decide to hear a case. So um, less than a majority of the court. So that's possible. You know, it's possible that the court denies all of them and you but we get some very impassioned dissents from one or more of the justices. Uh, so I don't think it's a sure thing, but I think it's encouraging. Um, I mean, I can't imagine I can't imagine better evidence that the court is preparing to consider this question than sitting on all these cases for so long. They've called for responses in all of these cases, which they don't normally do, um, meaning that, they, you know, they want to hear from the other side about whether or not to grant the petition. Um, so I think we're in the best situation that we can be. And I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. 
Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.